Welcome to the Investing for Life podcast, where we apply proven investment principles to the lives of successful business people to help you enrich your own. With your host, Douglas Isles. I'm delighted today to be joined by Dr. Annie McCauley, who founded the company Talkie Play. She's an experienced researcher and mother of two who applied biomedical, PhD, and her personal experience of losing her speech from a brain injury when she was only 18 years old to unlock her youngest child's speech delay. She's created a world-first learning experience to accelerate language development through interactive play. Due to the rapid traction for this product, children globally will have the opportunity to talk and thrive. Google selected Talkie Play as a top innovation from a startup out of Australia in 2019, and Annie herself was awarded the Young Scientist of the Year Award from the Royal Society for her own PhD. So, Annie, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Douglas. It's great to be here. I want to start with um, what at the time must have been a, a terrible um, setback to you, which you were training, uh, competing as a skier and living on a mountain, and then things changed dramatically. Can you maybe start there, uh, please? Yeah, it is a hard point. But, yeah, I was I was 18 um, and a competitive skier. And, yeah, living on the mountain, it was wonderful in some respect. But, um but unfortunately, a ski um, fell from a chairlift onto my head. Um, I wasn't wearing a helmet and um, I, I suffered a traumatic brain injury. Um, I went straight into hospital and because of that, I had to learn how to walk and to talk again. Um, it was really difficult. <laughs> that sounds, sounds terrible. Can you, can you I mean, remember that period or is it something you've kind of erased from, erased from your consciousness? <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of gone. So I had two years retrograde amnesia um, and then two years afterwards where I don't remember. But those around me, my loved ones, remember it clearly and they were there to support me. Um, In fact, my husband was the one who supported me through my rehabilitation. Um, We, you know, we focused together to get me better. Um, I learned to walk. I learned to talk again. It was really hard, but I had that support. Um, And I'm one of the few that have recovered. In fact, so much so I went on to get a PhD in medicine at Melbourne Uni. Um, I got married to my husband and we've had two children. So it is a wonderful journey that we've been on together, but it's been extremely hard. Are there still sort of lasting effects or is it something that that once you relearn these skills, you kind of, they stick with you again? No, there are lasting effects, but I think most of it is the emotional effect. You know, the way that I feel... I mean, I wanted to go and study my PhD so that one day I would help people. Um, I, I thought maybe I could make a difference because I've lived it, I've, I've breathed it, and I've been one of the few to get through. And I thought maybe that could have been for, you know, a, a good reason that that could have happened. Um, it probably wasn't until my um, my second child, my daughter Grace, was born um, that I really knew how much it had impacted me because she'd stopped making baby noises. Um, she stopped making sounds and, um, you know, I got her seen straight away and um, I realised that I knew what she was going through. Um, I knew with the difficulty she was having communicating because I'd had that difficulty. Um, hers was from a different reason. She was having multiple ear infections and throat infections, but she'd lost the motivation and ability to talk. And it causes significant delay in her language and speech and development. And I knew what this was going to be like for her locked out of the world. It hurts to not be included. You'd been locked. That's that's an interesting, uh, interesting word that not, not, not being included. You know, we, 
when we're investing, we talk about sort of going against the crowd and this idea of trying to be different. And when you try to be different, we're hardwired to, I guess, want to fit in. So it's really, really hard to, to take an opposing view. But, you know, I've read research that suggests exclusion feels feels like physical pain. So I mean, if we go back to your own episode, you were struggling from physical pain and then additional to that, that, that sort of compounding effect. So yeah, just must have been terrible. Yep. Yeah. Thank you for understanding that. It, it was. And feeling, going against the grain is really hard. I mean, we know that, but when it's not your choice and you're physically locked out from making friends, having conversations, people start talking over the top of you, like you're not even in the room and that you're not really a whole person. Um, it, it's a horrible thing. It's something that um, people and children with disability face every day um, in their life. And I, I didn't want that for her. I wanted to give her a voice. I want her to, to her to have friends. I wanted her to be included. I wanted to be part of her life and not locked out from her either and to have a relationship, to be close to her and to know what she was thinking, what she thought about and what her favorite color was, all those things that sometimes we take for granted. At that age, so Grace, I think you said, was one when this happened and she stopped making the noises. I mean, I, I remember being a parent myself, you know, the, the communication with a, a one-year-old is not particularly easy anyway, you kind of, you know, sort of noises and uh, you're not forming, you know, deep conversations, but at the same time, I guess falling behind is the, is the risk. So first of all, it's incredible that you, that you were aware enough to, to notice this, but I guess it's just interesting to sort of understand that, that, that journey that you went on with Grace sort of for, from that point. Yeah. So, I mean, we were able to get clinical help for her, but a lot of that was going to rely on us, the family, doing that practice at home with her every day. Um, and that's really hard when you've got, um, you know, working parents and we had another kid. Um, and it's it's just hard in general. I, you know, the life juggle, there was just one more thing. And this was a big thing sitting on our shoulders that we had to juggle. Um, I... I, I knew that we had to do it, but it was really hard to. And so even a year later, we were really struggling to get anywhere. Um, and that's when I decided I'd, I'd start doing something um, myself. In fact, there was a really pivotal low point, if I can tell you about it, because I'll never forget this day. It was so bad. I, um, I was sitting having my afternoon coffee and it was a day that I, um, I, I wasn't at work. So I'd been working at the hospital then um, and I had the two kids at home and I just started crying and my, my tears would just dropped into my coffee. And I remember thinking, that's really gross because um, I really needed that coffee. <laughs> Sugar or salt or whatever you get. Yeah, it's not, not so good. But I was crying so intensely and um, uh, you know, she was lying, my daughter was lying on the floor and she was screaming and throwing tantrums and she'd been doing it all day. And she probably wanted me to pass her something, but I had no idea what it was. And my son, he was four, he came up um, because I was crying so much and hugged me. And he said, it's going to be okay. And at that point, I felt even worse <laughs> that he had to comfort <laughs> More me. More tears. <laughs> More tears. And he told me that maybe we could just make the things around the house talk to her, you know, something like Beauty and the Beast. Um, I'd taken him to that theatre 
um, musical only a couple of weeks before. And he just said, "You, we could just make everything talk and then you wouldn't have to point to the table and say table and pass her the cup and say cup. It, you know, she could do it herself. And I just thought, you know, one, that was just an incredible idea but also impossible. And it was living in the world of a fantasy of a child or a Disney movie. And it, and I hugged him and I called him, you know, beautiful boy. And and I kind of left it at that. Um, but I, I stayed up thinking about it. And I thought, you know, this hurts so much. What if I could do it? What, you know, why not? And I, I started teaching myself coding on YouTube. And um, I built a website and I've got some hardware out and built that. And the first time I made this thing, so she tapped it on the chair and it said chair. And she pointed like she discovered the chair for the first time. And it made me feel really good. Um, so, uh, you know, that was, our, that was our breaking and moment and our moment of relief. So somewhere in the, the fantasy world of, of Disney, then there is ideas that we can all just work from. I've done a course on design thinking. And one of the things was that never say no, always say yes. And, and build and build and build and amazing things happen. But this is a, a real life example. Yeah. Because what if the idea just because it, it hasn't been done or you don't think it can be done, does that make it a bad idea? And I'm so glad that I thought, what if, and, and, and didn't say completely no, because now it's a reality. Um, and we've gone on to develop, um, so I, I did, you know, scientific um, research background on this to, with um, papers on autism to learn the best scripts and language that we could use to make her talk. And she went from nonverbal to verbal and then words and sentences and then concepts within a couple of months. And I, you know, I just, I just felt like we had done something for her. And not only that, her clinical team were asking, what have we done? And, and could they do it too? So, yeah, that's, um, and I've gone on now to validate it with just over 1,700 children um, in Victoria. And we've shown that it significantly makes an improvement on their language. So, so if we go back to that sort of that first step, and, I, and I'm sure the, the the first prototype was was quite basic. Um, maybe you could sort of describe what that looked like, and then and then how it evolved from there. Yeah, it was incredibly basic, but I think that's um, something I've learned in retrospect that is a really good thing to do. That you just want to keep trying things really quickly. And see if it works. So I built a website. I uploaded my voice to the website and I connected it with a phone. Um, I used, you know, like the tap for credit cards. I used that technology and I pulled it out of the phone and I got her. So I covered up the phone so you couldn't see it was one like in a box and she tapped on it and used the speaker. Um, Ah, Okay. So So you take the box to an object, the box touches the object and it tells you what the object is. Exactly. And it was really quite um, simple. Um, You know, behind the scenes in the coding bits that I had to learn was a little bit harder. Um, But the simplicity of it from her end to use it was so easy. We tried a couple of different ways in how I connected stuff to the chair because that was really hard. I mean, um, 
they're not the easiest surfaces and they're all different. And, and so we had to try different sticking things. Um, but I learned pretty quickly what um, can be destroyed by a yeah. two-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> almost everything, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. There's no tester like a two-year-old. If if it's going to work, you know it straight away. If it's not, it's gone. <laughs> yes. So we maybe should all have one of them in our uh, in our businesses. So so then you've got a, a, a device that that tells you what an object is. Um, how does it go from chair table to I guess the progress that the kid makes? So what does the research tell us about? Um, that 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 journey that they go on. Yeah, well, on a basic level, we know that if you read to a child, um, the more you repeat reading the same book and reading more books, they're exposed to more words and language. Um, and the more you read, the better that child's outcome is for language. Um, you know, this works by a similar concept. Um, and some children don't want to sit down and be read to um, because they're just perpetually on a motor. And this allows children to still get that level of words and language um, given to them, but just a different way. Um, you know, we work on that sense, but also on a different way, we work on a way that uses child motivation so that the child is initiating what they're interested in finding. And I mean, we know it in ourselves that when we're interested in something, we're more likely to pay attention. And attention makes a really big difference in terms of whether it goes into our memory or not. Um, and this was something that I know from brain injury research, that converting what we learn into memory is, is not so simple. Um, it has to have our attention. It has to be repeated enough times in order for it to move from working memory to long-term memory. Um, and we use ways to manipulate that so that we do convert things into long-term memory and therefore children remember and learn better. So does that mean we have a lot of um, chocolate bars wired up with the, uh, with the sensors? Or <laughs> what, are, what are the, I guess, what are the, what are the motivations that, that, that drive kids? Yeah, well, that's one of the things where we listen to kids. Um, so not only do we like to motivate them, but we, we do things that interest them. So, for instance, we have lots of games that make dinosaurs talk and facts about dinosaurs and planets. And while learning the word triceratops might not be one of those pivotal school readiness words that you can learn, um, it's amazing how the learning a new word and attempting something complicated Every adult in your life looks at you like you're the cleverest person on the planet. Like, did that child just tell me some facts about a triceratops? This is a thing called um, high expectations for a child. And when that child looks at, you know, has people looking at them as though they're clever, they have a self-fulfilling prophecy and they keep trying. And they might have been having trouble with the word look, like something really simple, and they're more likely to go back and attempt some of the harder things for them if they've found success with dinosaurs, for instance, that they love. Wow. Mm. So the obsession, the obsession that a lot of kids have with dinosaurs is um, she has some kind of uh, huge learning benefits rather than just being these big, exciting animals. There's a lot, there's a lot more to it than that. Absolutely. I think we should all lean into, you know, these obsessions as much as we can because they won't play out forever in a child's life. Um, but while they're interested, it's a huge learning growth opportunity. It's uh, interesting. I never never thought of it that way. So, prototyping—you develop, I guess, the concept on a broader basis. How does that then sort of translate to being a business? And uh, you talked about validating it with 
or you know, 1,700 kids, but maybe talk us through the, the business journey. Yeah, well, I, I've, um, you know, I've been in research um, for my whole career, so I didn't imagine that I'd made something that was turning into a business. In fact, not at all. Um, and it probably wasn't until I started um, talking to clinicians that they were saying, I want access to this, that I thought, I don't even know how I give you access to this. Like, what do you mean? And, you know, you, you would pay for this, but I, I don't think I can charge. So I started investigating, could I set up a business? I, I went through an accelerator in the end because there was a call out, particularly for women saying, have you got something that you think might change the world? Um, and that really spoke to me. And I never thought I was a business person or even a startup person. I thought that was a man in a hoodie in their 20s, right. not a mum that had two kids and was so tired um, but had made this invention. So I'm so glad that they wrote it that way. And do you have a hoodie now? <laughs> I got a hoodie through the Accelerator program, but I do not wear it well. I'm still – I like to still be me. <laughs> I, I wear my heels. Um, and I also wear my exercise gear at um, drop-offs and pickups, and I think I think that's a good thing um, that I'm breaking down some of the stereotypes of what it is um, to be an inventor, um, you know, and to run a business in a startup land. So, so through that accelerator program, what, I guess what were the key things that went from that I guess research-driven world to a more commercial-driven? world and sort of bringing bringing the product to life I guess you know maybe two or three things that really sort of jumped out for you through that through that process yeah well I got to develop a community um, of other female business um, owners that were starting up their business and that made a really big difference um, and also being able to ask silly questions like what does it mean to be a business and at what stage are you at you know, a business at, at what point? <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Is it just registering or is it no? It's actually what you do from that point going forward and building a team around you as well. Yeah, I got to ask a lot of silly questions that no one really lets you ask otherwise. Uh, and that made a really big difference um, from us just being something sitting potentially that would have just sat on a shelf to now being something that's a business that's an available product um, for people to purchase. Excellent. So you, you sort of touched a little bit there on on maybe stereotypes and I guess the the man in the hoodie against the the, the woman in exercise gear. But how? And I guess you don't know how different it is to to be a woman in founders. You probably don't know what it feels like to be a male one. But 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 it seems to be something that you are in a specific environment. What what, what is it you think that um, presumably appears to make it harder? for for female founders? Yeah, I think for one, um, I really didn't know, I could never see myself there. So actually physically seeing and hearing role models um, in the community really helps to imagine if I even belong. And I think that first belonging piece was really strong for me because um, I don't want to generalize to all women, but I've heard it said before that you know, when a woman applies for a job, they'll think of all the ways that they don't fulfill the application or the criteria, um, as opposed to saying, oh, well, I, I hit most of these. And I think that was the same with building a business. If I didn't think I filled the criteria, which was being a certain stereotype, I, I wouldn't have done it. Um, and it was only because people said, no, we actually physically want women <laughs> and yeah, being yeah. a mum is okay. That's great, in fact. 
Um, so I think that really helps. And I have a lot of women that contact me every week um, that ask me for mentorship that say, I've seen you, can you help me? I'm leaving research and I want to start a company um, and I've seen you do this. I can now imagine that I can do it too. So you have that multiplier effect, if you like, which which is talked about a lot in the developing world, the idea that um, you know, empowering females, education, et cetera, is incredibly powerful, the most powerful thing you can do in, in some of the communities. So you know, are you now at the stage where you're already giving back, even though that your business is still at the early stages itself? Yeah, it's a really hard decision though um, because I have to – put so much into the business to, um, you know, make it the success that we know that it is and can still be. Um, but also I feel like if I'm not part of this community, if I'm not supporting the community, one, I feel like it's a lost opportunity for us, um, you know, for us to see all these potential technologies and amazing people, if they don't do it, what, what happens to the world? Um, but also I think that I also do it for me because I don't want to be the only woman, you know, that's left research and in this area. And when I see other people doing it, I think it helps. You know, I think that we have kind of like a, a power group of us that are coming through and the more of us in number, the the stronger I think I feel about how we approach it. And I can also talk more to people about, well, well, how do you feel? And, you know, and how did people talk to you in investment? And what was it like? Uh, I think all of that is important to be a part of. And that's why I give time to to people. Something I've, I've talked about with the previous guest is this idea of of the the tenacity and the determination that's required to take something from idea to reality. Um, you, we started the, the episode talking about, I guess, the trauma you faced and then the trauma that your daughter Grace faced as well. How important is that as a driver? And, and do people need to have something happen to them before they, I don't know if wake up's the right word, but before they can really achieve? Um, gosh, I hope not because I don't, I don't wish <laughs> the trauma that, um, that I went mm. through on anyone. Maybe a trigger then. to have yeah. innovation. Yeah. yeah, a trigger, yes. I think, I think that um, it does help with um, coming from a point of view in terms of innovation for purpose. Um, and I think innovation for purpose also is a level of empathy and understanding about, well, your customer, but it's also about the community and the change that you want to see in the world. Um, and I think it is also what keeps me going um, because I know that we're making a difference in the way that I want to see it. Um, and I also know that if this is what I do for my life and I invest my time in this, I will be completely happy. Um, and I think that level when, I mean, I get offered with job opportunities all the time. Um, and I think if you're not, when you start something and you're not prepared to stick with it, particularly if you've taken on investors, um, that can be a really tricky situation if something really shiny and fancy comes up, um, like a role in a big organization that you would have never dreamed of. It's okay to say no to those things if you know your passion. For me, my passion sits in this. Um, and it really helps ha having gone through that trigger um, 
because it cemented my passion. I think, I mean, it's lucky because you know, so many surveys that say 85% of people are not not happy doing what they're doing or whatever. So so to be able to do something you love and, and actually make a genuine difference, I think is, um, yeah, it's phenomenal. Thank you. And I like to think the team that I'm building around me as well are equally as passionate. Um, I mean, they, the work that they do is phenomenal. The hours that they put in are a lot. Um, and, you know, we all get together and, you know, there's just so much, there's so many hugs and appreciation of other members in the team that I, I really appreciate that. I think it, we've hit the point where it's not just my passion that's fueling the business, that it's a team of us that are doing it. And and for all different reasons on um, personal, like because we've got children that have gone through a similar thing or we've had it as an adult uh, and really wanted to move forward other people's journey with language. Uh, you know, I love having that passion around me. Yeah. And this is more than just hearing now. So it starts off as the hearing was the trigger, but this is learning generally. Is that is that right? Yeah, so language learning is the beginning. But the impact that it has on a lifelong journey for children learning um, has a flow-on effect. So it might be language in the beginning in those ages between two and five, but it flows on into school and they're less likely to put up their hand to ask a question or for help or to say they have a great idea. They're less likely to participate in math class or in history or to do that science project. Um, and so the flow-on effect from that delay in language in those early years has that impact all through their education and flows onto their grades and then flows onto the career they get and how good they feel about themselves and their own mental health, their social ability from schooling to past schooling. We focus on that early language development because we know it has that impact for a person's whole life. So you talked earlier about, you know, the multiplier effect of, of more women becoming involved in, in the startup community, but the, the multiplier effect you're de- describing here for an individual customer is, is unbelievable. Like the difference you can make to even one individual's life, it's, you talked about not knowing whether someone would be willing to pay for this, but it's almost an unlimited price you'd be willing to pay for the, the opportunity you create. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's the opportunity that we want to create for our children. And that's the opportunity that I want to create for every child. Um, and, you know, I want to be part of the change that I want to see in the world. And I want every child to have the opportunity that my children do um, so that we can give every child a voice, give every child the potential to do well in school and to be who they want to be and to have their voice heard. Um, is And I think, you know, when... I ask around and when I work with clinicians and, um, and parents, I'm not alone. This is a passion that almost everyone has, that they say this opportunity should be universal. And, uh, you know, we're, that's what we're working towards with Talky Play and that's what we aim to achieve. What's your, uh, your son's name? My son is Hayden. Hayden. Well, I mean, just to sort of, just listening to you there, I think, you know, you said how emotional it was that that day when when Hayden came to you with the um, the idea. But I think you know what Hayden started in in a journey there is something you should be, I guess, incredibly proud of his idea, and then I guess even more proud of of what you've done with that idea and the uh, the change that you're going to make. So uh, look, I think that was you know I find that quite emotional listening to the the last part of of what you were saying there. So I think. Um, That'd be a great place just just to finish and say, look, you know, 
I guess congratulations on on getting this far, and I, I look forward to uh, seeing the future success. Thank you, Douglas. Oh, it's been wonderful talking to you, and I hope to talk again soon. It's great. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Investing for Life podcast. If you like what you hear, please remember to subscribe and share with your friends. For show notes from today's conversation, head to platinum.com.au.